So this morning's text is a continuation of Paul's defense of his gospel preaching and his call from the Lord to be indeed an apostle of the gospel unto the Gentiles. Uh, If you were to look at the big picture of the argumentation that Paul is bringing from verse 11 all the way through the end of the chapter, um, a a big piece of it is something that if you've had children, you've said uh, one probably too many times, or as a young person, you were told one so many times. And that is, if I cannot trust you in the small things, then, then I cannot trust you with something larger. And there's this issue of integrity in the small details that then speaks to the integrity of someone that you're going to ask of something more important. And we've covered this a handful of times, gesturing this direction as we've handled these texts for the last few weeks. But that continues to remain at the center of Paul's argument this morning. Again, he's going to argue for his truthfulness in every detail along the way because What stands at the center gravity of the church is the issue of purity of doctrine. If he cannot tell the truth in the small details, then he perhaps cannot tell the truth at all. And so Paul labors intensely in this section of Galatians to get the details right, to reinstill that sense of confidence. As he said for a moment ago when it was read to you, I swear, or it is as he says in verse 20, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So it is here that Paul continues his defense of his calling and his preaching of the gospel to them. As you recall, we've looked at the last few weeks of the accusation that Paul must have modified the gospel and changed it or trimmed its content in order to be a man pleaser. And once again, his argument continues this morning. There is no modification. There is no trimming of content Rather, I have preached and continued to remain committed to the full and complete clarity of the gospel, which I have received not from an individual man, nor from the laying on of hands from many men, but I have received this content and this call to preach from a revelation directly of Jesus Christ. So Paul, as has been read for you just a moment ago, goes deeper yet again this morning, and he changes the argument a little bit. He just goes deeper into his personal history, the history of his calling. We've seen the history of his conversion, and now he's going to speak of the history of his calling and his commission to preach the gospel ministry there in Galatia and elsewhere. Look at verse 15 through 17. I'll reread for you the section that we're going to deal with this morning, and we'll jump right into the argumentation of Paul's personal history of calling and commissioning from where he derived his authority to the church at Galatia. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, and again we talk there about God's predestined work in each and every one of our lives, It isn't just set apart here for Paul that, yeah, well, particular to Paul is God's predestination or particular to Paul is God's sovereign election and free grace of which he is pleased by his own, that is, pleasure to dispense. But it is typical. It is the way that God's decrees work in salvation. One is redeemed by the mercy of God according to his purpose and sovereign election. So Paul explains it this way. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and then he puts it into time through ordinary means, 
who called me by his grace. So he set me apart before I was born, and in time he called me by his grace. And so it works with each and every one of us who stand here today professing faith in Christ. But then Paul, again, to his point and his purposes here, says, verse 16, when, when, but when he was pleased, that is, when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, and then he puts it in coordinated effort to his calling or his commissioning, he says, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, this is what I did and did not do. I did not immediately consult with anyone. And if you read this text in light of Acts 9, you recall if we go there and we do the work, we've gone there twice already in this section of Scripture, but he's referring to his conversion uh, on the Damascus Road, or the road or the way to Damascus. And that is uh, when Christ immediately appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so this is what Paul's referencing here. He says, when that occurred to me, I did not immediately turn and consult anyone. And then you notice verse 17, he adds further biographical data. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and I returned then again to Damascus. Why is this significant as Paul continues to build his argument that he gave them the utter truth regarding the gospel of Christ? And that he's not a simple man-pleaser. Why why does this piece here of biographical information play such an important role in the overall argument? Because Paul here is refuting the central claim of the false teachers in Galatia. Those who have come in behind him and said, at best, Paul is giving you a watered-down or trimmed gospel that he received from the apostles. Not that the apostles gave him the wrong one, but it's Paul who, it got lost in translation. If we could put it crassly, once again, it would simply be that he was a bad student of the apostles. And with ill intent and bad motivation, he presented a half-cocked gospel to you. He left out two critical pieces of justification. That is, obedience to the ceremonial law and circumcision. He must have missed it in class. In his time with the apostles around table... He lost sight of it, or worse, he simply has bad motive. So Paul here, as he speaks of his own conversion experience, and he says explicitly, I did not consult with anyone after my conversion experience, is that he purposefully decided not to go to Jerusalem and seek the apostles' advice. Notice the text again, he's very specific here. He says, when God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, this occurred in my life, I did not immediately consult with anyone. He's a poor student. He gave you a half-cocked gospel. He needs to get clear on the details. No, 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 he's a man-pleaser. No, 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 I did not immediately consult with anyone. What about the apostle? Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away into Arabia. So he's very clear here. I did not seek advice or tutelage from any flesh. No man, no team, no group, even those in authority in Jerusalem. 
significant to Paul's argument here are two pieces. I want to give them to you. Number one, significant for Paul's argument is here is you notice that he does not downplay the authority of the apostles. He's absolutely saying, it doesn't matter if I went to them or not. Who cares about them? They're insignificant. No, rather, he's building the severity of his argument by acknowledging the authority of the apostles as those who were directly commissioned before Christ, by Christ. Notice how the language plays there in verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem. What's going on in Jerusalem? The church at Jerusalem. What was going on there? Those who were the apostles would have been there. But notice what he says. They were apostles before me. Acknowledging himself indeed as an apostle and thereby recognizing the direct call and authority of the other apostles that they too were commissioned by Christ. He's acknowledging their authority. Second piece that's significant here is not only just that he recognized the authority of the apostles, that they too were commissioned directly by Christ. They, they were apostles before me, like me. I was commissioned by Christ. I'm an apostle, so too were they. He acknowledges their authority and esteems them highly. But the other piece of his argument that continues here to play forward for him is he also recognizes that their authority as officers in the church was well known at the time of his conversion. Their authority as officers in the church was well known at that time of his conversion, particularly in Jerusalem. This is his reference to them. So you hear you in verse 16, at the end of verse 16. Again, how is this playing to Paul's argument? He's not a poor student. He didn't fail to get something right. Well, who did you consult? Well, at the end of verse 16, I consulted no one. And then his reference to the apostles, verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Well, well again, what was waiting for you in Jerusalem? Those who were the apostles before me. You see, so he recognizes their authority as commissioned of Christ. He recognizes their authority as officers in the church, particularly at the church in Jerusalem. Yet, he purposefully made the decision to not go consult with them. Read the text again. Remember the argument. You're failing to give us what you were taught. You, you've lost it in translation somewhere. By whom was I taught? The apostles, obviously. You botched it. No, I was not. I received the gospel from a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I gave you all things necessary for a faith that terminates in him. I left nothing out. But how can we be redeemed? I explained to you how you can be redeemed. Your faith must terminate on Christ Jesus alone. But what of circumcision? It's a false gospel. What of my own pursuit of material righteousness through micromanaging laws and strategies of self? It's a false gospel. Now, put it into Paul's mind, I'll wrap the argument up. When he was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, 
So here it is. Paul knows that he is now redeemed and commissioned to preach among the Gentiles. At the, end, at the midsection of 16, he has this, as he writes, an awareness. At that time, he knew what was to become of his life. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What did you then do with this sense of self and this sense of surety? What was the decision that you made next that now has affected us in Galatia? I did not immediately consult with anyone. Notice how this seems purposeful and full of intent. Because he adds 17, nor did I. So I didn't seek out any one particular person, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. You see, Paul made a purposeful decision at the point of his conversion to not go and seek the apostles in Jerusalem. He knew their authority in Jerusalem. He knew them as officers of the church, and he recognized their calling and commissioning by Christ himself. And yet, at his conversion, he purposefully made the decision to not go and consult with them, which is the attack in Galatians against him now, that he did. Why? Why would he have done that? Why, why, why would he have decided purposely to not consult with any one particular flesh, nor go to Jerusalem specifically to those he knew who were in authority in the church? Why? Why did he not go and consult with them, perhaps, is the question. Rather, the accusation is he did and he got it wrong. He says, I did not, absolutely. Well, why not is our question, and it is probably this. Paul understood at the point of his conversion and his calling into gospel ministry by Christ. That they were gospel colleagues from day one. You see, as Paul understood it, from his conversion and his commissioning to preach the gospel, he knew that he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ as were they. And in that very moment, he considered himself a colleague to the school of apostles. Again, notice the language of verse 17. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles. They were there in Jerusalem. I knew of their their authority. I knew them as officers in the church. I, I, I knew them in Jerusalem. I did not go to them. They were apostles, yes, before me. That is, they were appointed by Christ before me, but they have never been appointed above me. In other words... Paul, as he understood it immediately, in his conversion and his commissioning to preach the gospel and of what the ministry was in Galatia, of which they received from him, both in his person and in his content, he did not need the authority, the instruction, or the permission from the apostles to begin his gospel ministry. He was content with his authority being grounded in Christ's immediate calling and commissioning him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And this he immediately did. 
But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. To those that I was well aware of, those who were the apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. You see, to the argument that Paul here must have failed the Galatian church, and now the church in its purity of doctrine ought to turn their gaze to the instrument of the ministry of the false apostles, those Judaizers who are adding works to grace. To the argument uh, that they are putting forward, Paul is a bad student, has simply failed to translate the full content of the gospel. To Paul's defense against that argument, he is to say, I could not have been a bad student of the apostles even then. Since immediately following my conversion, I had never met any of them. Well, what was he doing in Arabia for three years? Notice he says, okay, so if I wasn't sitting under the feet of the apostles and receiving my commissioning from them, receiving my gospel content from them, of which I absolutely flat out deny. Rather, I gave you what Jesus Christ, our Lord, ascended to the Father's right hand, gave to me, with nothing being lost in translation. I went away into Arabia after my conversion. So I didn't seek anyone, nor Jerusalem, but actually what happened to me after my conversion and calling to preach to the Gentiles, I went away into Arabia. That's actually what I did. And then I returned to Damascus, and verse 18 says, after three years, I went back up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and I remained with them 15 days. So the question, perhaps, if he didn't go to the apostles and to seek out counsels of other men in order to get the content of the gospel right, but he went to Arabia for the better part of three years. The question is, what was he doing there? Why did he withdraw? Because, again, it wasn't just because he was instructed. There was some sort of contemplation involved. I I knew who was waiting for me or or who would be waiting for me if I went to Jerusalem. I I know what was going on in the church of Jerusalem. And I didn't seek anyone here, and I didn't seek anyone out over there. I, I cautiously made the decision to withdraw and go down to Arabia. I spent the better part of three years there following my immediate conversion. So what was he doing? It's an interesting thing as a pastor now, um, uh, having the chance to preach through the book of Galatians and coming to this text, because I have been well acquainted with this text for a long time, um, uh, because it's used as a justification by uh, uh, theology teachers to force students to go get a master's of divinity. Um, it, when you're, if you were to go to Bible college or you were to talk to a minister, uh, maybe as a young guy in high school and you're considering perhaps going into the ministry, this is a text that comes up real quick to justify sending you off the seminary for three years. Uh, the Apostle Paul did it. He withdrew and he studied for the better part of three years. And they, 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 they used this in college or in uh, you know, uh, seminary to justify the Master's of Divinity degree lasting a minimum of three years. You're lucky to get out of there in three years. Um, so that maybe invalidates their argument here from this text. 
uh, the years don't exactly line up. So it's interesting to look at this text from a historical perspective rather than kind of a browbeating perspective of why you have to go get your divinity degree. But the real genuine, honest question is, what was Paul doing in Arabia for the better part of three years? Historical consensus describes it this way because we really just don't know specifically. If you look at the record in Acts from his conversion into where he comes back and Barnabas takes him back over to the apostles, um, where you see that it's just kind of like an empty space. And here in Galatians, Paul references that period of empty spaces as, I was in Arabia. I withdrew and went to Arabia. So the question is left lingering to historical consensus. Well, what was the apostle doing during this time? What's going on in his days in Arabia? And the consensus would be this, as best as I can supply to you. And that is, quote, he immediately turned away from all human influence. Which may be the argument as to why when they're saying he's simply influenced by the apostles, but he botched that when he spoke it to you. He got the translation wrong, uh, which is his argument. Now, I did not get it wrong. The Catholic Church stands with me. That is, here in the first century, the gospel I gave to you is the gospel me and the brothers share together in harmony. I'm with them, and they're with me. You are the outliers. This is his argument now. So consensus says, again, he immediately turned away from all human influence. For what purposes? The the summary writes, in order to reflect in solitude on the matter of his calling and on the turn which his life was now taking. That seems to be just organically or, or commonly it makes sense. Think of what took place with Paul in just a very brief period of time. As he recounted um, just earlier in the text, uh, you notice verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. So think of Paul's life in Judaism at the time of which his conversion took place in the road of Damascus in Acts 9. This is what he references about his own argumentation that makes sense that after such a traumatic event, a wonderful, gracious, nonetheless traumatic uh, event of a conversion moment to Christ, a call to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, going from verse 13, for you heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how it was prior to my conversion. How I, what were you doing in those days? You know what I was doing. I was persecuting the church of God. How so violently? Again, how thoroughly I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among all my contemporaries, essentially, is what he's saying. Because I was so extremely zealous. I was a zealot for the traditions of my father. Then comes this conversion moment on his way to Damascus. And it seems his argument here is, I withdrew after that moment and that meeting with Christ. I withdrew. For what purposes? I wanted to immediately turn away from all human influence. I didn't consult with flesh. Like, what just happened to me? What do you think I should say following this episode? Neither did I know of Jerusalem, knowing of Jerusalem, neither did I go up to consult with the apostles who were before me. I withdrew to Arabia. Why? I wanted to immediately turn away from all human influence. To do what? Well, to reflect in solitude on the matter of my calling. 
and on the turn which my life was now taking. That seems to fit and seems to make organic sense with the text, but I want to make just this brief application. Um, it, it seems like it would be rather natural to make. Not to fall back into the same old idea of a theology teacher teaching a young pupil what they are to do after graduating college, and that is go to seminary undoubtedly. But rather, I do think there is something to be said here if we were to apply the thought of Paul here to our own lives. There is something to be considered here from this text about the role of quiet reflection. Everything in culture uh, uh, mitigates us against from focusing on quiet reflection. Perhaps that's why so many people are drawn to ideas of yoga, something like that. Because there's some sense in which people are hungry to get back to some role of quiet reflection. Of course, for the Christian, as with Paul, the quiet reflection isn't entering a universe of cells or nothingness or black holes of consciousness. But rather for the Christian, a time of solitude, quiet reflection, is about one's relationship to God. And the person of Jesus Christ in time, who was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate for me, was died, buried, and was risen. As with Paul, as he demonstrates here, there is a time to withdraw from human influence regarding our own spiritual life with the Lord. To have a time where someone doesn't explain all of our own thoughts and our feelings, but we express and reflect upon our own thoughts and our own feelings in relation to our calling with Christ. Solitary time, I guess, is what I'm getting at, is solitary time with God is a fundamental to the Christian life. As I was thinking of this with Paul's withdrawal for a period of some time, three years, I thought, wow, what an application regarding the Christmas season. It just fell to my lap to make. Looking at all of the numbers coming in off of Black Friday, it's inevitable. Pastors always talk about materialism at Christmas time. But it does make sense. Given to me is this opportunity because of this text of reflection. We do need to remember, you and I, That when we are in the midst of the doing, the going, the buying, the selling, the reading, the knowing, the talking, and the scheduling. And I just jotted those down from our house. All things we need to remember, all things pass away. But as Isaiah says, the word of the Lord endures forever. There's something here for us in this text, I think, perhaps for each of us to different degrees. There's something here about the need to recalibrate our priorities. Paul saw that need immediately, a need to withdraw and experience some sort of solitude and reflection upon his matter of calling and his life in God. 
He did so for the better part of three years. But then notice as the text progresses, the following this three-year period, Paul sought out the apostles. So it was following the three-year period. I'll jump in verse 17 and, and we'll move forward. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. What did you do? I went into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Verse 18, then after three years. So this period of three years of withdrawal. After this period, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So there you have the data on Paul of his expression of what he did at his point of conversion in the immediate aftermath. After three years sustained reflection and preparation for public ministry, Paul sought unity with the apostles. Specifically, he met with Peter and James. There is probably a consideration uh, the three years were not spent exactly in isolation. He was probably very likely engaged in some sort of public ministry because he did immediately begin, if we look at Acts 9, he began immediately to preach that Jesus was the Son of God. So if he were withdrawn to Arabia for three years, of which he says he was, it's very likely that he was also at that time engaged in some manner of preaching and teaching expression of the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. But now after that three-year period of reflection, growth, understanding, uh, uh, I, I don't know what would follow all of his thinking out of three years of solitude and preaching and discipling, he then went back up to Jerusalem to make contact with the apostles, knowing that this is a critical piece. He did want to make connection to them. As to why he made a visit with Peter, you notice there he very specifically says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, Cephas. And I remained with him uh, 15 days. Now again, as to why he went up to visit Peter, we really don't know. Why Peter particularly? But again, there is something organic about a conclusion that we could draw from this text. Why Peter? Out of everybody, he went back after three years and he wanted to go to Jerusalem. Again, because he knew the apostles were there. He knew them as officers of the church with authority in Jerusalem. So after three years, I went to Jerusalem to see them. But then he adds very specifically to visit Cephas. I remained with him 15 days. Again, specifically not sure, but organically perhaps. One commentator makes this mention. It seems to summarize fairly what would organically match the text, and that is, quote, that it was probably owing to Peter's peculiar position in the first Christian church, that is, the church at Jerusalem. So again, we can think of Peter's peculiar position in the first Christian church and think of then Perhaps at the church at Jerusalem, Peter indeed was a thunderous preacher. We see that in the book of Acts very early on, beginning in Acts 2 and following. We see his thunderous preaching in the book of Acts. He would have been well known as an apostle, commissioned of the Lord, as an officer of the church at Jerusalem. So it makes strategic sense for the apostle to then seek out, yes, Jerusalem, where the apostles would be. But then, particularly, I want to speak with Peter. But then you notice it's not just Peter. He makes a very particular mention also, verse 19. I'll have you know, again, this doesn't fall under the idea that I then came to him to receive his authority, to receive his instruction, or to receive his permission. 
In fact, I saw none of the other apostles. Except James. And then he denotes the Lord's brother. Why does he also add on James? Is there an explanation for it? And again, we don't have something very specific that outlines why it would be Peter, why it would be James. Again, it would be Peter most likely because of Peter's peculiar position in the first Christian church at Jerusalem, given the history of the book of Acts. But why is James, our Lord's brother, added on? Well, again, quite practically, it seems to be that Paul left Arabia wanting to visit Jerusalem. And going to Jerusalem, he had an idea of making acquaintance with the apostles. He knew they were there. He knew they were commissioned by Christ. He knew that they occupied a place of office authority in the local church. He knew they were there. After three years, he wanted to make their acquaintance and fellowship. When he got to Jerusalem, it seems to be from this text that on the ground there, when he arrived, was simply Peter and James the Lord's brother. Is there something deeper going on why he saw Peter and perhaps why he met with James? Is there some connection because it was our Lord's brother? I would say no. I think he went to Jerusalem to see the apostles. The apostles who were there happened to be Peter and James, the Lord's brother. Why did he want to meet with them? Because they were colleagues in the ministry. They were preaching the same gospel that he was preaching. There was union and fellowship to be had among them. And he sought that right hand of fellowship with them after three years of being alone. Remember, just because he is arguing that I never consulted flesh immediately, neither did I go up to Jerusalem to receive their authority or their teaching or their instruction. In fact, I didn't go to Jerusalem upon my conversion to receive their permission. He is in no way casting shade upon the apostles. It's just that as it relates to his argument that he simply messed up the message that he received from the apostles, he wants to clarify the record. I didn't mess up what I otherwise supposed to deliver to you in purity, what the apostles taught me, because they didn't teach me. I gave to you what I received myself from the revelation of Jesus Christ. I did not seek the apostles' instruction, approval, or permission as it relates to what I preached to you. The final piece of the text for us this morning, and this is what Paul is giving to us about the integrity of his ministry, and that is, notice the kind of otherwise sad piece of the text. It's an unfortunate stroke that has to be given here, and that is verse 20. This is the final piece of our time this morning. It's important, but it's otherwise unfortunate, and that is verse 20. As he pleads with them, and what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. What's unfortunate about that comment in the text is again, why is Paul so earnest about the timeline? You stayed 15 days with Peter? Is someone tracking? What if you stayed eight 
or nine? Or th- why, why tell us you stayed 15 days? Why? Why, why, tell, why give us an account that you spoke to no one, then you went to, to Arabia, then you came back, and you were there, mm, 15 was it? 13? I, I said 15 days. And then at the end, after explaining his very tiniest details of the sketch of his timeline since his conversion to preaching to them, why then, in the end, would he feel the need to swear an oath upon it? Why is he so earnest about the timeline and every personal detail following his conversion events to the church at Galatia? Well, number one, what's unfortunate about it is it speaks to the brokenness of the relationship. Think about it. He is broken over them. We've seen that multiple weeks and weeks before when he fears I may have labored over you in vain. And his heart is breaking for these people. Because he remembers preaching to them. He remembers being among them. You remember brutalized by stoning. Being among them and them receiving him as an angel. If not almost nearly like Christ himself. And now you don't believe anything. Even the fact that I am telling you the truth. I am telling you about where I was for X amount of days. And I need to swear it as an oath that I'm not lying. Where has our relationship gone? But the second piece, and this is what I'll conclude with, is that it demonstrates what we have seen again and again in this biographical sketch with Paul about his preaching and the integrity of his person and its message. That is, Paul's consistency here in every detail and his comment to them that before God I do not lie demonstrates that truth-telling is the manner by which sound doctrine is communicated and preserved in the church. Truth-telling is the manner by which sound doctrine is to be communicated and preserved in the church. That is, if the ministers, if those communicating truth are liars, then sound doctrine will leave the church. As we get back to the old adage, this is why Paul swears even over the details. Because the way that people consider it is if you lie about the small things, then how can we trust you with the bigger things? Paul knows that truth-telling is tethered to maintaining sound doctrine in the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will maintain among us a spirit of truth, a spirit of doctrinal precision as best is allowed, that you'll enable us to think clearly, communicate effectively the things of the fundamentals of our faith, that we'll be a community that is built on confessing the truth that we have received from Holy Scripture. Finding those faithful summaries in time and reciting them together, holding one another accountable to the truth that has been taught to us in the summaries of Scripture. Help us to continue to grow as a truth-telling ministry, one that doesn't get derailed or find falsehood acceptable, but be men of integrity, women of integrity, families of integrity, a community of truth-tellers. 
knowing that if we want to be able to share the gospel with integrity, there must be integrity about our lives. Help us with this massive task by the power of the Spirit in us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.